Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. And this will be a fun one. Uh, I'm speaking to my buddy Tom Mellett from Twitter. I asked him how he wanted to be referred to for this episode. I suggested freelance Twitter philosopher. Uh, He came back with, Tom Mellett is a retired high school teacher of math and physics who delights in trolling UFO Twitter and Facebook because their emotional maturity is at a ninth grade level. He is also a cat butler in Los Angeles. You know, I've known him for a while, but we got to talking recently because last week you might have noticed I, I published an issue of my newsletter... And I'm bringing it up right now so I can get the name right. The New Intergalactic Cold War. How Secrecy Breeds Inanity. From CIA Psychic Spies to Tom DeLong. And Intergalactic Cold War refers to really this idea that these UFO myths have been out there forever. They've never been given the stamp of approval from official Washington. But still, you know, there are UFO fans, UFO true believers in... Every level of government, of course, all over the world, everywhere in American life, there are UFO true believers because it's a belief and some people are going to believe it. But of course, the UFO true believers will have you say since ex-military men or physicists or government people are fans of UFOs or believers in UFOs that it must somehow be true because they're serious people who wouldn't have such a silly belief system. What makes this particular time interesting is the fact that now Washington has seemed to realize that they could use this conspiracy theory idea, the pseudoscience, this belief in UFOs to push some sort of agenda. Um, These are the people who are saying UAPs or UFOs are real, but they don't have to be extraterrestrials. They they can be China. We have to increase our, our defense budgets to deal with it. You can't say UFO true believers without the word believer. It's like a religion with these people. So, of course, once they saw my article, it was a nonstop day or two of, like, making fun of me on Twitter, basically. Which, you know, which is fine. I wouldn't be a journalist if I wasn't pissing somebody off. So, Tom and I, this kicked off a whole nother conversation with me and Tom about how put off the parapsychologist eminent and wealthy parapsychologist and engineer who Tom knew or knows about pseudoscience, which um, Tom would deny the reality of or claim that that's an invalid principle or something, but I'm not quite ready to go there, to uh, just, you know, kind of talking about UFO Twitter. It's a fun conversation, and I think you'll really like it.
Arthur Middleton Young, AMY we call him, he was the inventor of the Bell helicopter, the Bell 47, mm-hmm. you know, the ones you see on MASH. Yeah, isn't that like really the first kind of commercial working? Yes, that was the first commercial, yeah. But what I liked about Arthur is uh, the reason I got into it is because uh, he uh, uh, he actually – he was not a gearhead. In other words, he didn't invent the helicopter because he was this, you know, uh, uh, involved in aviation or that stuff. He 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 invented it in order to ground his theory of process uh, that he was uh, working on all his life that uh, uh, led to his founding the Institute for the Study of Consciousness in Berkeley uh, in in seventy two, and that's how I got to know him. So. Uh, it was interesting. He was, uh, he's a fascinating, uh, character. Uh, he went to Princeton in the late twenties to major in math. And, uh, and he formulated his theory of, uh, process, uh, you know, evolution has some definite stages and there's a descent and there's mass. And, all uh, and it coincides very closely with the scheme of, uh, Theosophy, and also later on uh, Rudolf Steiner, who uh, who brought us the Christianized form of Theosophy, but uh, kept a lot of uh, Blavatsky's uh, a lot of her stuff. Uh, so, uh, so Arthur actually, I mean, it, this is in, in, intriguing. In in the late twenties, he goes to the uh, patent office in Washington, and he said, "Well." Uh, I knew that in order to uh, uh, to really formulate my theory of process, I have to do something in the world. I have to invent something. So he combed through the patents that were existing, looking for something to invent, and then he settled on the helicopter. And this is 1929, and it took him, uh, well, about 10 years later, he had a working model uh, of the uh, – of the helicopter, which looks almost exactly like what that helicopter that, that recently took off, you know, in, on Mars, you know, it looks just like it. Uh, anyway. And then he met Larry Bell and 30 and then, you know, that, that was of course the really what put Bell aircraft on the map because when he finished the helicopter in 47, it was just in time for the, for the Korean war. And so, uh, you know, so that's where the the first you know the contract to do the helicopters came. So that really put them on the map. When you talk about his theory of process, it seems to be like a simple philosophy that's applicable. I guess the point is that it's applicable to all of life or all of the universe. Yeah. Could you kind of explain that a little bit? Evolution then happens on what turns out to be seven distinct stages on four different levels of reality. Uh, and uh, he uh, accounts for uh, like the you know the spirit, the soul, the mind, and and and, and body. And he shows uh, in his book the reflexive universe. Uh, he shows how you have this evolutionary processes that take. Uh, you can see it in the uh, in the uh, the atomic kingdom, in the molecular kingdom, in plants, in animals, and humans. Now, this for me, uh, I had been a teacher. Uh, I had been teaching uh, physics and math 
at, at uh, uh, Waldorf high schools in both New York and then later out here in Los Angeles. And I saw that this was very compatible with, you know, with, with, with Steiner's view. So I was able to incorporate Arthur's ideas into uh, the teaching of, uh, of, of things is chemistry. Uh, it, uh, it, the, the way you can see how the atomic, uh, uh, the periodic table of the elements follows the same uh, seven stage process as does, uh, as do molecules, as do plants, as do humans. So it's very, uh, it's an incredibly rich intuitive uh, uh, grasp. And, uh, I consider Arthur Young to be one of the greatest astrologers of the 20th century. Uh, astrology was extremely cr- uh, central to his view, which is, you know, blows people's minds. But his, uh, uh, his autobiography is called uh, Nested Time, an Astrological Autobiography. So he was able to take his theory of, uh, you know, his theory of process, and not only was he able to apply it to the invention of the helicopter, for all intents and purposes, the development of the helicopter, yeah. he was also able to look at it and see, to understand, like, the fundamentals of astrology? Yes. Uh, this is in his book. Uh, uh, he calls it the, Ros- the Rosetta Stone of Meaning. And... Uh, I could sit down a physicist who would be, if he were open to it, I could sit him down and teach him astrology. I could sit an astrologer down and teach them physics with this Rosetta stone. Uh, Because that's why he called it a Rosetta stone because it said, here's this language in astrology. Here's this language in in modern physics. Yeah. It's all developed in in his, uh, in his uh, geometry of meaning books, uh, for example, the you know the, uh, the the idea of the position of an object and its velocity and its acceleration, and uh, in, in in calculus, this is the each one is the is the derivative of the one before it, and he correlates uh, I, you know, position with Libra, and the balancing and velocity with Cancer and. Uh, uh, you know, acceleration with the impulse of, uh, of Aries. So, uh, uh, so that's, that was the amazing, uh, you know, discovery I made that he, that, cause I had, I had learned some astrology, but, but had no idea how close it was to physics, uh, the, the, the physics I was learning, you know, so it's like a, so yeah, so, uh, he definitely has that, that Rosetta stone for anybody who wants to, you know, look at it. You know, that just reminds me of like, you know, among mystics and uh, practitioners of the occult, they're always looking for correspondences, not only in reality, but in symbols. Arthur was able to, uh, he, he satisfied the physics side of me. No one else has done that. I, I haven't found anybody else who's, who's been able to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the, uh, you know, of course, like every other guy, he has his, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, strange because in the eighties, he, uh, he got, uh, he read this book that, uh, Colonel Wendell Stevens gave him, gave him about uh, Billy Meyer and the Pleiadians. And he got into, you know, and he, uh, uh, you know, he, he loved that stuff, but however, he didn't care about the, the physical, whatever this UFO stuff, 
uh, he cared about the message because he, he said it seemed that whatever, uh, you know, Billy Meyer was channeling, you know, the, the, the message that came was seemed compatible with Arthur's theory. I mean, that's so, uh, you know, so now we look back and we just say, well, you know, Billy Meyer, he, he hoaxed all these photographs and then we dismiss him. Uh, and that, I don't think that, that Bob would bother Arthur. He just cared about the message. So, so anyway, but, but I guess what, yeah, what, what, so Arthur Young is like, for me, the pivotal figure. Uh, but of course, it brings me, you, you asked, you know, about how did I get involved with the, the you know, the Hal Putoff. Uh, Hal was on the board of uh, Arthur Young's uh, Institute for the Study of Consciousness in Berkeley. Now, I didn't come across, I didn't meet him until 1981, but in the 70s, Arthur's I, I, I call Arthur like the Gertrude Stein of uh, of the new of the, uh, the the hippie physics. You know, there, there there's a book out called uh, "The Hippies That Say Physics" by uh, uh, what's his name, David Kaiser, an MIT professor. Yeah, and it focuses. You know, you know about it. Yes, it focuses on uh, mainly you know the, the fundamental physics groups, uh, Jack Sarfati and Fred Allen Wolf and. Uh, uh, and uh, and actually, I knew the woman, the the one woman physicist there was Elizabeth Rauscher. Uh, but they had been uh, so Ar- they had met at Arthur Young's Institute in the 70s. And he was like the Gertrude Stein, you know, with his salon. Uh, but of course, they left and went their own way. And then I came along and, and met him in 1981. And so he he told me about uh, he mentioned Hal Putoff. And uh, so he, that's how I first heard of Hal. Uh, and then what's very interesting is how I met Hal Putoff. It was in Sacramento, California at Rudolf Steiner College, where I was studying to be a Waldorf teacher. And why would Hal Putoff be there? Well, because he and his wife, Adrian Kennedy, uh, now they had been married in the Church of Scientology, but that's another, another part they were at Rudolf Steiner College because they were the founders of the Palo Alto Waldorf School. Uh, it's called the Peninsula Waldorf School today, and it's uh, kind of nicknamed like the, the Waldorf School for you know, Silicon Valley, uh-huh. right? And so a lot of the, the, you know, the techies send their children there to, uh, you know, and, and it was just, subject of, a, of an article in the times about uh, how uh, uh, the irony of these uh, of these uh, Silicon Valley techies sending their children to a school where uh, they're forbidden to use, uh, you know, electronic, uh, you know, media until like, uh, you know, they get a, a, I don't know, like fifth grade or something. So, so anyway, so uh, yeah, so I met Hal there and he gave a, uh, a talk on his ESP research, you know, to, to uh, a group of us there. Uh, and that was the very same week in 1984 that the, uh, the famous investigative reporter, Jack Anderson, uh, came out with his, his column, uh, breaking the news that the, that the CIA had given $20 million to this pseudoscience project, you know, at SRI for remote viewing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was, you know, that was such great timing. 
then in 1986, I, uh, I ended up, I moved with my wife and daughter that we moved, uh, she was from t- uh, Texas. So we moved back to Austin and I tell Arthur Young about it. And he said, Oh, well, Hal Putoff just moved there, uh, to, uh, to Austin. And, and that's where he's now, you know, he set up his Institute of Advanced Studies, right? Or Earth, Earth Tech International. Yeah. And then, uh, I was sending my, uh, uh, all right, my daughter Amelia was going to the Austin Waldorf School, and so were Hal's kids. So I would meet him every morning, you know, because we were the designated dad drivers for our kids, uh, you know, for that time. So, uh, yeah, and then, uh, and then in '94, uh, he uh, 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 he let me uh, give a talk at the. Uh, he organized this SSE conference, the Society of Scientific Exploration, in '94, uh, and uh, I gave a, pa- a more philosophical paper there, uh, and and it was actually talking about narcissism and and John Wheeler's uh, uh, anthropic principle and and you know other stuff, but that interesting too and uh i was uh became a sort of a witness uh to ufo history or ufology history because that was the same conference where uh hal's chief uh, engineer uh a guy named ron johnston uh who was this and this was during a lecture i mean he was like three seats over from me uh you know like uh he uh collapses dead on the floor in the middle of this lecture at the conference. And, and uh, I don't know if you know about that, uh, but he's listed as, uh, you know, you you look him up on the internet and then he, he lists of all these uh, ufologists who have mis- died under mysterious <laughs> circumstances. Sure. I mean, even today, they, they, they did not give a dead definitive cause of his death. You know, essentially they said, well, his heart stopped beating. Uh, but anyway, so so of course it gave rise to all these conspiracy theories that, you know, uh, maybe it was uh, the CIA they secretly killed him because he was working for Hal or something. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but then you know I ended up uh, I I was at New Texas and then uh, yeah I went through a divorce and then went to Tennessee and I was. Uh, uh, in 98 and, uh, ended up teaching physics labs at the uh, Vanderbilt university for a couple of years before I came to Los Angeles and, and Oh three. And that was to teach at the Highland hall Waldorf school in, in Northridge where I was teaching, you know, physics and math in the, in the high school. What was your impression of Hal, or what is your impression of Hal? Is he serious? Is he silly? Is he as smart as everybody thinks? What's your impression? Definitely. He's, uh, one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. And I think it's interesting, and I don't think it at all contradicts what you're saying, that he's very much involved in what I would call pseudoscience these days. And I don't think that at all takes away from his intelligence, you know, or his intellect. Someone can apply their intellect to down-to-earth things, or once they start, like, kind of leaving the provable world... I think you just get kind of pulled astray and your intellect then goes from being a blessing to a curse and where it's really almost creating an alternate reality that you inhabit. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, that's true. But it's also, I think what it's also true, and this is like what I'm really uh, interested in now or or working on now is that what that the basis of what we call being pseudoscience, it's like this, uh, it's a kind of an old notion of the old notion of objectivity. Uh, Yes, of course, it's pseudoscience if you have this, uh, this belief in objectivity that uh, it has come to us down through, you know, Karl Popper and falsifiability. Uh, and uh, what I'm looking at now is one of the, uh, is, uh, well, all right, I'll just put it out there. The, the, some of the latest uh, findings in modern physics are showing that uh, in quantum physics, not only uh, we talk about, well, observer creates reality, but observers can be, can differ in their observations and both can be correct or one wrong, the other, but it doesn't matter. Both are, in other words, objectivity itself by, and the, the whole foundation of, of what we, of, of, of making the charge of pseudoscience is itself uh, crumbling away <laughs> or ha- I mean, it has crumbled away. In other words, there's no, uh, I don't make that distinction anymore between pseudoscience and real science because uh, uh there was a, a woman uh, a scientist who was, I think, uh, uh, I consider her a great uh, philosopher of science. Her name is Donna Haraway. Uh, she's at Santa Cruz, and she's a biologist. But uh, uh, And she's a feminist uh, writer, and back in the, in the 80s, she wrote about situated knowledge, uh, that it depends on your identity and your point of view. And that's that's coming to fruition in modern in, in quantum physics today, where where uh, where two people uh, will have opposing views of something, and both are valid. Uh, and it is a it, you know it's a contradiction. And uh, she she talked about the uh, she called it the that what uh, what uh, science does is the god trick where uh, uh, yeah, we're using both relative things that everything is relative and everything is, is, is total, you know, that you can, um, <clears throat> you're, you're essentially putting yourself in the God view of, of, of everything, which is a, which she says is a, is a very male, male, specifically white male thing to do. And she developed, what's called situated knowledge, which is it all depends on where you're coming from. In other words, it does depend on who you are, your identity. And then that would get us back to things like astrology and Arthur Young and, and, and why, uh, you know, why he, his ideas would be valid. So I'm, you know, you know, yes, you're right about saying, yeah, Hal put off his, yeah, pseudoscience, but that is so, I don't know, that, that strikes me as so, 20th century, you know. Oh, it's very, very mechanistic, yes, no, like retro in some ways. uh, Yeah, and it goes back to, uh, I mean, why did Karl Popper give us falsifiability as the only way to do science? Because uh, he knew uh, that he was dealing with what he called, uh, uh, it was Munchausen's trilemma. Mm-hmm. All right, have you heard of this? No. Well, it's essentially that 
unless you have something like falsifiability, you uh, you're either you know one you're involved in you're going to be involved in circular reasoning, you know that's one uh, one of them, or two you're going to get caught up in infinite regress where you will, you know, which is like moving the goalposts, right? You know, right. you've thought, yeah, uh, infinite regression. And number three is just simply, uh, you know, axiomatic or dogmatic. You just assume uh, that there's like, there's some cause or ultimate cause. So these three, this trilemma in order to overcome that, he, he gave us falsifiability, but, but that's part, you know, that's part of what leads to or what has what led to the the charge of pseudoscience and that's so old it's almost like uh, I, I I call it almost Victorian <laughs> right uh, right if that you uh, know you yeah, know it's, if it's, that new um it's interesting because I come from this from like you know most of my life being a magical mystery tour through the Western esoteric you know and the occult and what I came to is that I need a way to to answer some like really basic, simple things as a journalist, I need to be able to say, you know, right. Um, there are UFOs or, you know, there are extraterrestrial unidentified aerial phenomenon, or they can be explained by life on earth. You know, I need to be able to say somebody's ripping someone else off or not. You know, it's like, yeah. You know, in the kind right. of material day-to-day world in which, not to get all uh, labor on you, but, you know, that, like, regular people, working-class people live in who are being taken advantage of by a system that takes advantage of them, I need to be able to yeah. say masks work or they don't halt the spread of COVID or, you know, or mRNA works or it's dangerous or whatever. And um, there, I don't see a lot of room for, like, you know, so it's easy for me to fall into that trap of like such and such a thing as pseudoscience. And I'm like, not really that rigid about it, or I'm not really that, I'm I'm always open to like bigger understanding of the world and, you know, different layers of reality. But, you know, when talking about Hal Pudoff, it's like, I really see him taking the world for a ride and I wonder if is that something? Is he playing games? Is he does he legitimately believe what he's saying? I just try to I'm trying to understand what that phenomenon of how Pudoff is. Well, remember that quote. Uh, I think uh, I think I you have it uh, where he wrote in the Scientology Celebrity Magazine of 1974. Uh, now consider that because he started SRI in '72, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so in 74, you know, with his uh, remote viewing uh, experiments going with Russell Tard, he wrote in the Scientology magazine that the, uh, that the, the uh, Scientology training uh, enabled him to, be, uh, to become fearless in, in playing life games. And so, yeah. And some people would call L. Ron Hubbard a psychopath because he saw reality yeah. as a game and he stayed away from objectivity and just thought about what he could do with reality and how he could enrich himself. Yeah. You know, on one hand he could be talking about game theory, but on the other hand, that's a, that could be a very psychopathic way of looking at the world. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Psychopathic. And, but it, you know, and Hubbard, you know, we, he, he stole his ideas from everywhere 
and you know and use them but uh, of course we're <laughs> you know uh, i think uh, i think how uh, saw value in what he in in what obviously he saw value in it because uh, you know he learned uh, remote viewing from L. Ron hubbard and remote viewing of course is uh the talent for I guess they call it clairvoyance. I accidentally referred to it in my article as telepathy, but clairvoyance, a way of putting yourself in other, yeah, you know, a separate from where you are physically and seeing what's going on in a mountain range on the other side of the world or, a, you know, on Mars, at the face on Mars. And that was a skill that Scientology taught. Because L. Ron Hubbard called it originally exteriorization uh, with full perception. In other words, you go outside of your body. Such a mouthful. Uh, yeah, but that's that's a description of remote. You know, and I think that's what uh, Ingo Swan was also an OT7, you know, not just Hal. Ingo Swan worked with um, Hal Putoff at SRI. Yeah, he was their great uh, great psychic, you know. Uh, uh, Russell Targ was a, a, a real physicist. Uh, I mean, Hal is a PhD in electrical engineering. He's not technically a physicist, but more an engineer. Uh, and then Ingo was their prize psychic. I mean, he was really, a, you know, a gifted uh, 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 psychic. Uh, and but he was also OT seven. He uh, he did the whole the whole uh, uh, program in, in Scientology, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know it, it, what I think, but I think Hal was too smart for for Hubbard. I mean, Hubbard had a, it, you know, uh, Hubbard was very clever, but and yeah, you know, like he had his psychopathy, uh, kind of uh, kept his uh, intelligence at a certain level, and and Hal was already beyond that. So I think Hal left, you know, uh, that's why in a strange way I, I I refer to Hal as like the Martin Luther of Scientology that he left. You know, uh, to form like the Protestant version, his own version, uh, and uh, you know, he went his own way. I love that the Martin Luther of Scientology, because Scientology is when you get away from the destructive cult aspect and the media aspect and the money and the psychopathy of its leaders. It's a technology. It's a form of technology that either works or doesn't work or some aspects of it work or don't work kind of on its own. You know, you think of the, the Protestant Reformation, and then you look at the what was the reaction of the Catholic Church, you know, was to form the Counter-Reformation, and, which would bring us the Jesuits, and of course that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. But Right. Did, did Hal Putoff ever break with Scientology? You know, when you hear of ex-Scientologists, you hear about them being harassed by Scientology— um, and, you know, becoming public enemy number one. Did Putoff ever have that kind of public break, or does his relationship to Scientology remain cordial? Yeah, in the late 70s, he did break away, and they, he did get some flack. It wasn't that, it, it wasn't that bad, as, you know, as, as we read about, you know. But, yeah, he was definitely, uh, he, you know, he caught some flack for that, but he did leave the church that, uh, and and went his own way, and that's why I call him like the Martin Luther because he, he, he did protest and leave and form, you know, formed his own uh, church in his own way. You know, the reason we're talking about Hal and the reason that Hal has had his, you know, this elevated 
stature over the last few years is because of his role in ufology. And I get the impression when I had my encounter with UFO Twitter this weekend, um, you know, at first I shouldn't have been surprised, but I'm always surprised when the attacks are so vociferous, you know, and, um, and it just, it comes across to me. And then the, the nature of the attacks, um, there wasn't too much, there was a little nitpicking, but there wasn't too much actual like substantive refutation of my article. It was really, you know, who's this bozo think he is. And it just came across as like emotional based and not that they couldn't find stuff to pick at it. I'm sure there's enough facts and fake facts out there. Pseudoscience, if you will, in the UFO community that I'm sure they could, you know, put together a pseudo substantive argument against my work if they wanted to bother. But what I got was just this emotional reaction. And I just felt, Oh my gosh, this is a religion to these people. And I'm wondering like, do you see UFOlogy, UFOlogy as a religion? Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's, uh, it has all, I mean, it has all, uh, uh, well, all the markings of a, uh, of a UFO religious, uh, cult. And I, I see it, uh, I think, you know, from my own background or being brought up as a, as a Roman Catholic, uh, I see the, like, it's like, this is like the, the UFO Twitter level. It's like medieval Catholicism, uh, in the sense of, of the veneration of the saints relics, like, this is the crash debris or the, you know, and the elevation, the, the, the worship of these highly religious figures. Like, uh, uh, I, 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 I sometimes call Hal Pope put off. They've made him Pope. Uh, but of course, Jacques Vallée is the other guy up there in the, in the Pantheon, uh, you know, uh, worshiped by the, the, the faithful. These are the, uh, the faithful and it's very medieval. It's like medieval Catholicism to me. Uh, uh, but what, uh, but this is the interesting thing because what, what they worship is, is the, uh, well, it's the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, right? That the nuts and bolts, uh, and they're, they're, they've really made modern science, their new religion. Uh, but, it, they can do so because moder- because science itself is still stuck in the duality of like calling this pseudoscience. In other words, you're not the the extreme uh, du- uh, duality or the the, the the binary nature of uh, uh, you, you you can't help it if you're going to uh, base science on falsifiability, right? You're going to have to have this uh, uh, this this polarity, but. Uh, you know, uh, let's just say they don't practice non-duality, you know, uh, or other Hindu, uh, uh, I forget the, the name of the religion that has, uh, you know, that things can be true, false, that can be both true and false, and that can be neither true nor false. I mean, there's four possibilities. Uh, we're still stuck in, in this binary thing. And as long as science is stuck in that, they will be, they will become a religion because you can only hold on to that as a religious 
belief. And I've, you know, uh, as a belief, yeah. You know, in this new dark ages, we're kind of beginning to see. It seems like, um, you know, I definitely see that, like in the political realm. Like I'm, as I've expressed many times before, I'm a pretty down to earth person, just worried about concrete things, and, um, and the way that science, what I would call like scientism, is used to you know, back up political arguments. Um, just the phrase, I believe in science, you see on these signs everywhere, you know. It's like, belief has no place in science. It's like, science is a process for evaluating facts. I, I, I just see so much bigotry in kind of like lefty liberal world right now, saying that as a man of the left myself, you know, um in the name of science, science has become adopted as just another rhetorical weapon, which is appalling and unscientific. But it's also, uh, because I'm, as you say that I, uh, what Arthur Young would say about science is, or, you know, you talk about belief and facts. He said, belief, you know, belief is what we project upon to facts. That's what makes them facts. In other words, uh, you can't have facts without without a, uh, an underlying belief that's projected upon them. And what it, what I see is that uh, facts are cherry picked from both sides. These are my facts, and uh, these here's the opposing set of facts. Now, interestingly enough, that's what, what I was getting at in these uh, uh, these quantum physics experiments that are there. Uh, that both uh, both observers can disagree and both be objective. I'm not saying they're right, but they're objective. And so, uh, it, yeah, in the political realm, we see it, it it's where it's obviously uh, polarized. But what if the opposing political view is just as objective a fact as yours, you know, left or right? Then I say, you know, which of these uh, objective facts is going to leave people without food, without health care, with uh, less liberty than they had before. That's kind of how I operate. You know, which is, uh, but is that, is that not like uh, what they call, uh, you know, virtue signaling or uh, going, you know, the, the moral grandstanding? I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, it's either virtual signaling or not being a terrible person. But, you know, it's like, we should probably end on a UFO note, um, since this is why people will be listening, probably. Yeah, so I've sort of been absorbing uh, some of the old ufology over the over the past couple of years. Uh, uh, you know, things about like a about Roswell and uh, mm -hmm. and interesting. I was just talking to my older brother Jim uh, the other day, who was a professor at NYU, and uh, and NYU, and he knew all about. You know, he didn't know anything about ufology, but he knew all about the uh, the, uh, the the Project Mogul, the balloon that did crash at Roswell back then, because it was an NYU professor who uh, had de had uh, developed the, uh, the the equipment or designed uh, a great part of the balloon or the, the the Project Mogul, and so he knew about that and and, and that it, how it led to the mythology of the of uh, Roswell that uh, even, <laughs> even remember the, uh, uh, for example, 
the the myth that they uh, uh, that they recovered this uh, this material that, and then there was this strip that had hieroglyphic writing on it, right? Well, that turned out to be uh, the uh, the guy at NYU had gone to a toy store to get uh, you know something for the for the balloon. And it was wrapped in this, and and it had this strip on with the hieroglyph, which would, you know, it was a design on the wrapping paper of the toy store, whatever he was he was getting, and that was interpreted as the uh, the hieroglyphs of Roswell. Yeah, you know, it's amazing how these UFO sightings or these UFO incidents really um, show our con- cultural context or cultural biases. Um, there's like a famous, or I don't know how famous it is, but there's a sighting I saw here in Pennsylvania up near where my parents live in Erie County. And um, the guy on YouTube was recounting it and he was said, you know, it was the 80s. He was, you know, driving down the street and that he, you know, stopped real quick because this being appeared in the middle of the road and, you know, he turned his highlight, his high beams on and he looked like an Ethiopian. And I just thought that was the funniest <laughs> phrase, an Ethiopian. And then, yeah. like, and it makes sense, like, in the 80s, the context of the 1980s, what was in the news all the time was, you know, famine in Ethiopia. And also, it was the 80s in Erie County, pre-internet, probably pre-cable TV for a lot of people. And that probably was the most exotic-sounding thing that the person could visualize, you know? Well, the guy whose work I like is uh, George P. Hansen. Yeah. And his, tri- you know, the trickster. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he kind of inspired me to, uh, uh, to, uh, develop like, uh, something like analogous to the uncertainty principle, uh, where you, the more you, you focus, you get the position of the uh, electron, the less you know about, about its momentum. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, he, he sees the UFO phenomena as, uh, both uh, deceptive and irrational, mm-hmm. and I thought of that because uh, a- and and he is has a positive view of of like hoaxing, and where hoaxes UFO hoaxes, uh, what what they uh, their value is showing that at root whatever this is it's 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 deceptive, mm-hmm. uh, and so. You have all these science types trying. This is you know trying to narrow down and make it rational. But the more they try to make it rational, like you know whether it's Avi Loeb and this new uh, Project Galileo or whatever, uh, they the more they will they will uh, create or be enmeshed in deception. Because and on the other hand, the 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 debunkers. Uh, the debunkers are there to show, to prove the irrationality of the phenomena, because the debunkers come armed with the charge of, you know, pseudoscience, or they're, you know, saying, well, no, it's this, this, it's this, this, it's just can be very uh, well explained by this. Uh, But they show the irrationality of it. Then you have the experiencers, the people who are have these UFO experiences or abductions or whatever, 
and they just accept it with all its irrationality. So you have this, uh, uh, you know, and and I'm, I'm, I'll have to draw it. I put it on a on a kind of a a grid or a, a, a what do you call it a, a X Y axis, kind of like Arthur, like I learned from Arthur. Uh, but uh, but I love the idea that well, yeah, you will that the hoaxing is important to show deception and the uh, the debunkers are important to show how irrational it is, right? Because it doesn't conform right to rationality and it never will. And, uh, and so my, uh, uh, my, my motto, I, I've, uh, upgraded the, uh, the, the, the X files Mulder motto of the nineties. So I like to say, well, uh, the truth is out there, but it's a lie. Uh-huh.